The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We will be looking at the last chapter of the Bible. What a great privilege and what a joy. Those of you who haven't been with us, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We started in the very beginning a while ago, chapter 1, and have just gone all the way through sequentially because that's how John the Apostle wrote it, and he meant it to be read and studied that way. And uh, We've been charged by Jesus Christ himself as believers to not just go through it, study it, learn it, hear it, but more importantly, apply it to our lives. And Revelation is a book that can be practically applied. We're even going to see that same exhortation in the last chapter. So we are we made it through uh, information given to the church that John was living in the midst of in about 95 A.D. That's who this this was originally written to. Christians, about 95 A.D., they were under the Roman Empire that was uh, had a growing and growing disdain for Christianity because they were jealous because Jesus demanded we bow the knee and call him Lord, and Caesar didn't like that. So Christians in John's day were beginning to undergo different kinds of persecution, including isolation and derision, and later on became more and more physical. And also they're being harassed by uh, early Jewish community who rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And they were also uh, attacking these early believers that John knew in Asia Minor. And so these seven churches that John wrote to were undergoing persecution, not so much full physical persecution at the time. A little bit of that was happening, but more so uh, social persecution, religious persecution. They were being isolated, uh, ostracized, de-synagogued, all, all kinds of other things that were happening that was affecting them and even on the brink of uh, physical persecution. As a matter of fact, one in their midst was killed for his faith. And so John, actually God, wanted to encourage these Christians in Asia Minor to let them know that he understands their persecution and God wanted to encourage them in the midst of their suffering and persecution and to remind them that's actually part of the Christian life. Being persecuted, isolated, ostracized, and suffering as a Christian is part of the Christian life. That's basic. And so that's one of the reasons that God wrote Revelation to them, that immediate community. Another reason that God gave the book of Revelation to these believers in 95 AD was to let them know that yeah, their suffering and persecution was real, but it was it was localized just in that area. And, and then God shows in the book of Revelation that you're experiencing some persecution and suffering right now in your little area to a certain degree, but let me show you what is yet to come for future believers. Wholesale, universal, worldwide persecution like you have never seen before in your life. That day is coming. And that can be an encouragement. When we get our little problem compared to a greater realistic problem, it kind of lightens the load for us and gives us perspective. And that's what God wanted to do to encourage them. Because you can always, this is the truth that I found, no matter what you're going through, you can always find somebody else who's going through something worse than you. I know that's true of me. And that's what God is showing them. You ain't seen nothing yet. He's not minimizing the reality of their problem, but he's just showing them. And also, they are being persecuted by certain people, and again, God is showing them there's uh, Satan incarnate is going to come and live on earth and persecute the church like you've never seen with mass bloodshed like never before, and it's going to be universal. Uh, so keep that in perspective as you're working through your own individual struggles. And then finally, it's not just the bad news 
God gives them to encourage them, but he gives them tremendously great news. And that's the end of the book of Revelation. That's where we are. That starts in uh, Revelation 19 through 22. Although there have been bits here and there and words of encouragement throughout the time of tribulation to encourage the saints, to get them to lift their head to heaven and see the big eternal perspective, to encourage them to persevere and press on. Uh, but God in the book of Revelation gives these suffering saints an eternal perspective that, yeah, you're going through some persecution, but it's limited, it's temporary, and in light of the big picture, in light of the eternal picture, look what God has in store for you, believer. Glorious, unimaginable blessings are going to be in your, your inheritance. And, and the persecution and the suffering is worth it in light of the big picture because of the glorious realities that come in the millennium for a thousand years and in the eternal state, which is where we are right now in chapters 21 and 22. So if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ, you have a personal relationship with Him, and you live in this life right now, and you are suffering somehow, you're enduring some kind of trial, and I, I can guarantee you are. As one pastor has widely said, wisely said that the Christian life is typified, you're either going into a trial, in the midst of a trial, or coming out of a trial. So that applies to all of us, doesn't it? And if you're a Christian, you know Jesus Christ, and you're in the midst of trial, persecution, suffering, whatever it is, uh, this is our great hope. This is going to be our inheritance. This is our future. So get your eyes up, focused on Jesus, the eternal perspective. It is all worth it. Very, very encouraging news. So let's go ahead and look at that. We are now catapult into the new heaven, the new earth, uh, the eternal state, and that is in Revelation chapter 22. Let's go ahead and look at it. And I want to read the first 11 verses. So we'll have two more messages in the book of Revelation. Uh, come into this grand culmination. And so we'll pick up the first half of chapter 22 this morning and follow along as I read in Revelation 22, 1 through 11. This is a continuation of chapter 21. Before I read that, just to remind you, uh, John was allowed to have a vision of the new eternal heavens and new earth. And at first he sees it from a distance coming down out of heaven and it is glorious. It is gleaming. It is brilliant. And then he's allowed to zoom in and actually see the details of its description, its walls, its uh, decor and everything else. And then now in this chapter, God allows him to zoom in even more and to see what is going on inside this eternal city among the saints. That's the beautiful portrait we get to see as God just continues to zoom in on what the eternal heaven is like. So let's zoom in with God and his spirit. Chapter 22, verse 1, and he showed me. See, that's the transition. God pulled out the telescope just one more notch to get just a little closer of the details. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of, the, of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. I'd say amen to that. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face. And His name, that's God's name, shall be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night and they shall not have the need of light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show 
to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And let the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Another amazing intimate portrait of what life is going to be like in the eternal new Jerusalem, also called the new heaven. Same thing. So we continue our investigation of what God has revealed to his people, to believers, to Christians. Again, for our good. Before I go and unpack some of the details and highlights of that, I just want to point out two passages in the Old Testament because, again, so much of what is in Revelation was birthed or found or first introduced in the Old Testament. And Paul read earlier from Genesis chapter 3, and I want to highlight just a couple of verses out of there because as we get this zoomed-in perspective of what the new city, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem is like, the most dominant features in the new heaven from God's perspective that we are to be aware of, the most dominant features in there are the, the throne of God where Jesus and God the Father sit and reign, the river of life, and the tree of life. Now, there's probably all kinds of other stuff there, but those are the things that God wanted us to know. Those are the things He accentuated and highlighted for whatever reason. And I believe those are the most dominant and important features. And so that includes the tree of life and the river of life. The tree of life is not a new concept. The tree of life was introduced at the very beginning of the Bible, and so we saw that at creation. Actually, Genesis chapter 2 said this, when God created everything in the beginning, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed. This is Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. This was a real place on earth. Eden was real. It was historical. This is not fiction. This is not mythology. This is not allegory. This really happened. And there God placed the man, Adam and Eve, actually, uh, but first Adam, whom he had formed in the garden, in the east and out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden. So that even in all these trees that God created in the beginning, he highlights that the tree of life is there and it is special. Apparently, Adam and Eve never got to the tree of life to eat from it. We know that from the end of Genesis chapter 3. But the tree of life was there. There it is introduced. Also in the midst of all of these Luscious trees and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also there, the tree they weren't supposed to eat from that they did eat from. Then we know the deal. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed, they ate, they sinned, they were cursed, they were punished, they ran. They tried to hide from God. God cursed them, the earth, and everything with it, even Satan himself. And sin brings consequence, and part of that consequence had to do with the tree of life that we're going to see today in the eternal city, and that's Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life. God didn't want Adam and Eve, after they sinned, to take, away, take and eat from the tree of life. 
Because it probably, we don't know, maybe it would have preserved them forever in their sin. They would have lived eternally and immortally in sin before redemption. So God, out of grace, bans Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of life that was in uh, paradise, the Garden of Eden. And as a result, uh, verse 23 says, Therefore the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, booted them out to cultivate the ground from which it was taken. And so we don't see much of the tree of life ever since then. Just here and there, every once in a while, it's mentioned in Scripture. We're reintroduced in Genesis or Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, to the church at Ephesus. And God gave a promise to Christians, to believers in the church who were faithful. Revelation 2, 7 said this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. We, we've learned that an overcomer is a Christian. That's all. Here's your promise. It is yet in the future. To him who overcomes, I will grant, this is Jesus, Jesus will grant you to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. That's awesome. And the tree of life, whatever it is, it's a supernatural tree. We've never seen or experienced anything like it, so don't try to figure it out with your finite brain. That is impossible. Uh, but it's a real tree. It's a supernatural tree. It's a heavenly tree. It imparts life. Somehow God uses it to do so. And the privilege of the Christian is we get to partake of that tree in the new heaven. Let's go ahead and look at some of the details. And I just broke this passage up into three main points to hang our thoughts on. Let's look at the first point about the new heavenly Jerusalem, the paradise of God, uh, the new eternal city. And that's uh, point number one, verses one through five, is the bounty that will be there, the bounty of the heavenly Jerusalem. We've seen a lot of truths about the new Jerusalem, and now he accentuates the bounty for believers of things we will get to enjoy and partake of while we're there. Not only is it just a glorious place, because you can have a beautiful, intriguing, glorious, lighted-up place, uh, but that doesn't provide sustenance and the basic things you need and the bounty and the life-giving uh, blessing that you need. So just having things looking good doesn't always account for what you need for your soul, but that's not true of the eternal heaven. Everything about it is absolutely perfect and for our good. And this is no exception in terms of the details. Let's go ahead and look at the details. I can only just highlight and kind of skim things. This is so rich. And reading this passage and studying it and highlighting it actually might create more questions in your mind than I answer today. That's okay. That's okay. Because what that does is that forces us to keep thinking and meditating on the truths that we heard. So if you come away scratching your head or frustrated and you've got a whole bunch of questions, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. The finite is trying to understand the eternal and the infinite. And that's actually, it is impossible. But by God's grace, we can get a glimpse. So let's go ahead and look at the details of the bounty of the heavenly Jerusalem that will belong to every believer of all the ages in the future. Uh, the first thing there in verse 1, and he showed me a river of the water of life. So that's one of the most dominant things. We just saw in the next, uh, the earlier chapter that there's no more sea. That's significant because when you look at the planet Earth from a distance, what do you see? You see primarily water. And in the future, regarding the new Earth, there is no water. There is no sea. But there is the water of life, whatever that is. I think it's a real river. I think it's like something we've never seen or experienced before. It is supernatural. It is miraculous. It comes from the very throne of God. It is an absolute blessing. God does it and has this water of life for the purpose of sustaining us, blessing us. But it's like nothing we've ever seen or experienced before. He showed me the river of the water of life. And this thing, and remember, the, the new heavenly city is just massive. That was one of the points last week. The new Jerusalem is immense. And everything in it seems to be immense. And so you can imagine the water of life is immense. It is the water of life. That means 
practically speaking, probably nothing in it is dead. That's one thing that we have never experienced in our lifetime in the history of the world is water that didn't have anything dead in it. I don't care how much you purify your water. It's got dead stuff in it, whether you like it or not. And that ain't going to be true of the water of life. And that's why it is called, it is just pristine, crystal clear, like nothing we have ever seen before because there's no dead things allowed in heaven. That is the water of life. So just practically speaking about physical life describes it, but also it refers to spiritual life. It flows from God Himself, the end of verse 1. This water of life that's just flowing through the eternal city where we get to be and participate and experience and go to is the water of life that is dominant and it's flowing from. Its source is the throne of God Himself. Isn't that amazing? It is issuing from God Himself in Jesus Christ. And whether you take water literally or symbolically all throughout the Bible, water always from God's point of view speaks of cleansing of satisfaction, of purifying, of sustaining of life. And that's going to be true of this river. God is going to use it to refresh His people even in the eternal city. The water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's just a great reminder that God continues to be even in the eternal state. You know, some, sometimes we think, that, oh, I'll be in a resurrection body, I'll be perfected. And, I, and then we get this kind of independent attitude or spirit. So we're just going to go out on our own up in heaven because everything's cool and I'm sinless and I'm perspective and I'm immortal. But that is not true. Did you know that we're still going to be 100% independent beings in heaven, dependent upon God for our very existence, even eternally? And that's what the water of life speaks of, that we continue to have our dependence physically and spiritually forever on God himself and on Jesus because the water of life flows from his throne Continually, And it speaks of God's ongoing, continual preservation and sustenance. God isn't just the creator and judge. He's also the sustainer of life. And that's true in the eternal heaven as well. The water of life. Absolutely beautiful. It goes on. Oh, by the way, there's an interesting phrase all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of uh, Leviticus. Dozens of times it keeps emphasizing when it talks about killing those animals and splittering blood all over the place and sacrificing that to God. And it keeps saying in a refrain, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood over and over and over again because human life is in the blood, physically speaking. That's, the, that's what God has chosen to help sustain our life in this life, blood. The resurrection body will have no blood. First Corinthians 15 says that blood will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The life will not be in the blood in the eternal state. The life will be in the water, the water of life from God Himself. Just an interesting thought. And so this uh, river of life flows into the middle of the golden streets of heaven somehow, right down the middle thoroughfare. And on either side of the river of life was the tree of life. The tree of life. If we went to Ezekiel 47, verse 7 through 12, we would see a similar description of what life is going to be like during the millennium. Where there's also a river, it's not the river of life, but it's a river that flows from the temple down to the Dead Sea. And when it gets to the Dead Sea, it purifies the Dead Sea continually. And it also says there are trees on the banks of the river. And they produce fruit continually. And so there's a parallel there. And so this is also going to be true in heaven. And in the in heaven, you've got this tree of life. Um, and actually, many commentators, Greek scholars, say that the reference to tree here is a generic use of the plural. In other words, it's not just one tree of life. Because there's uh, the tree of life is next to the river as it goes and continues to go. 
a generic use of the plural, which would mean there are many trees of life on the banks of the river exactly is how it's depicted in Ezekiel 47, which is kind of interesting. That was a relatively new thought for me about five years ago when I heard that. Um, the generic use of the plural, especially using the word tree. It would be like today if we were to say, in Big Basin you will find the redwood tree. That would be a generic use of the plural. In Big Basin you will find the maple tree. And on and on. So that's a, an example of the generic use of a singular noun in reference to a plural. So it could very well be that you've got all kinds of the tree of life just going down both sides of the banks of the river in the eternal city. What a glorious picture that is. And the, the tree of life never dies. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every single month continually. Isn't that amazing? So this tree of life that I think is a real tree, we've never seen anything like it. And each month, in other words, at, at what we know to be about 30 days, the tree just keeps producing fruit. But at the, it's the fruit of the month club. Apparently they have that even today. They did not make that up. They are not original. The fruit of the month club started here 2,000 years ago when God revealed it in Revelation. And so this, this tr the tree of life is going to be producing every single month continually, unlike some of the trees we have now, like our orange tree we used to have that produces twice a month. And you're twiddling your thumbs. It takes forever and your thumbs get tired because, wow, taking a long, it's not producing every month. And there are many trees like that. The tree of life continually, constantly, constantly producing, which again is just a picture of God's ongoing provision for all of his people for all eternity. And not just ongoing provision, but the variety. Can you imagine a tree that produces a different kind of fruit every single month? Oh, I wonder what's up this month. And on and, and on it goes. That is the creativity and variety and blessedness of God. He wants us to enjoy life and He wants us to enjoy the fullness of life even in heaven. I, can't, I hear some Christians sometimes say that heaven sounds boring. Are you kidding me? Heaven is going to be the most exciting place you have ever been to. You can't even conceive of how amazing, awesome, and exciting it's going to be. A tree continually producing the best, most precious kind of fruit and a different fruit every single month, forever and ever. That is awesome. The tree of life. But just the fact and the portrait that there's going to be a tree in heaven when we are perfected reminds me that we're also going to continue to be humans. We will still be people. We will still be physical we will still have five senses. We will still be able to bite, eat, swallow, taste. Not only will we have senses like taste, our, our taste buds will be enhanced to the full to enjoy life. God wants His people to enjoy life. That's what He said in the New Testament even now. He wants us to enjoy the fullness of life. And that's going to be true, true even in heaven with the tree of life. We're going to have physical bodies. Not only are we going to have five senses, we'll probably have at least six senses because we'll be able to discern the spiritual world in a way we never had before. It's amazing. So this is the absolute epitome, quintessential example of the fullness of human life like never seen before, yet planned and determined by God in eternity past. This was His plan all along. The tree of life. I could go on and on. Can you build a treehouse in the tree of life? I don't know. These are questions I've received from kids before. Can we climb on it? I don't know. But it's just a glorious thing. It goes on. It yielding fruit every single month continually. And the leaves, it's got leaves. And the leaves of the tree were for the Healing of the nations. The, the word healing there is therapeutic. 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 We're healing. The promotion of health. So the tree of life has fruit that we're blessed from. It has trees that somehow God uses to promote and continue to preserve health in heaven because there is no death and disease in heaven. And somehow the tree of life contributes to that. Absolutely amazing. Also the fact that there's the tree of life by which apparently we get to eat and partake from. Maybe we're going to be vegetarians in the eternal state. I don't know. I'm not an advocate of vegetarianism right now, but 
because I like my bacon. But before Adam and Eve sinned and before the flood, Adam and Eve and the human race decreed by God, they were vegetarians. So it could be. Everything we need is provided by God in the future. The animals are probably rejoicing at that thought. So um, what else is in the new heaven and new earth for us to enjoy? Verse 3, and there shall no longer be any curse. Wow, there shall no longer be any curse. We just read earlier from Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, Cursed are you. In the very beginning, God cursed Satan. He cursed the animal kingdom. He cursed Adam and Eve, the human race. Genesis 5 said God cursed the earth. Romans 8 goes into detail showing how the earth is cursed. Nature is cursed. The spiritual world is cursed. Our bodies are cursed. Our mind is cursed. We are fallen. We live in a fallen world with fallen people. And we've lived under the curse for 6,000 years. And that's why Romans 8 says three times that God's people groan to be relieved and set free from the curse. Ain't going to happen in this lifetime. We continue to live under the curse. A literal curse, a physical curse, a historical curse. It affects everything in life. We just had this massive earthquake that created a massive tsunami that wiped out 10,000 plus people in Japan. And people ask you, well, why did that happen? And why do earthquakes happen? And why do tsunamis happen? And it's global warming. No, it is not global warming. It is the curse that God instituted on planet Earth 6,000 years ago. Scripture is clear about that. We live on a cursed Earth. It's a sad reality. So every time something tragic happens to that, it should remind the Christian of the reality of sin, of fallenness, of God's judgment, that He's a holy God. That's the bad news, but also of the good news. God is a Savior. He is merciful. He is a rescuer. And He wants to save His people. And He's got a beautiful Eternity for His people where there is no more curse. And that's what we've got to look, to look forward to. No more curse in heaven. And everything that goes along with that. No sickness, no disease, no death, no Satan, no demons, no cursed environment, a perfect environment. And on and on it goes. No more curse in the eternal heavenly city. And it goes on the end of verse 3. Uh, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. There's one throne apparently that Jesus and the Father are sharing for all eternity. One throne. That's what Jesus said earlier in Revelation. We saw it. You get to sit on my throne as the Father. Let me sit down on His throne. In fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 15 at the end of the age. Jesus gives everything from history and His kingdom to the Father. That the Father might be glorified. And the Father and Jesus, they are one. And they share this glorious, glorious throne for all eternity. One throne. And it radiates as primary in the eternal city. So the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. What are we going to do in heaven? Well, it tells us right here. One of the things we're going to do. Three things in this passage tell us what we're going to do in heaven. This one says we shall serve Him. What are you going to do in heaven? You will serve God. You will serve Jesus. That's not a bad thing. You know, some people go, oh, how boring. That is not boring. Did you know that every single one of us right now in this life serves somebody right now, or we serve something it's not boring to serve. As a matter of fact, you know, it is, we take great joy in serving those that we love and those we respect. Don't we? I mean, if you thought about it, there is no greater joy than serving someone you love or respect. You can apply that to anything. Uh, who you're married to, who you like, who you have a crush on, who you work for. A boss that's lousy, I don't want to serve him. A boss that is absolutely fantastic and you have nothing but respect for that person, you want to serve them out of your heart with a pure motive to bless them. And that's how it's going to be in heaven. We're going to serve with absolute, unmitigated joy, pleasure, fulfillment of God and Jesus Christ for all eternity. 
Not only are we going to serve God, did you know that in one of the parables in the Gospels, it says that Jesus will serve us for all eternity in heaven. Isn't that mind-boggling? That is amazing. Jesus, the Savior of the world, is going to serve me in heaven forever. Wow, I don't even know what that means. But he gave a picture of it on earth when he washed the sinner's dirty feet. But we will serve God. That's what we do in heaven. It goes on, verse 4, and they shall see his face. I mean, it's just one amazing, unbelievable truth after another that just beyond comprehension. Can't even get my thoughts around this. They shall see his face. We shall see the face of God finally in eternal heaven. How is that even possible? I just, I remember when Moses, who spoke as it were face to face with God, Moses, one of the greatest prophets of all time, Moses, who could do miracles that were unthinkable, was not allowed to see the face of God. He was only allowed to see a shielded backside of one glimpse of a manifestation that characterized God. Because scripture is clear. No human can see God and live. No human on this earth in their fallenness can see God directly and live. So Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, they weren't too far off. In that one scene, you know, where they opened up the Ark of the Covenant and everybody looked in, just turned instantly to death and melted. That's not too, that's not bad theology. I don't know about the rest of the movie, but that I was like, I appreciated that scene. <laughs> you cannot look at the... And that's why when you hear these books or these preachers or these or religious mystical people or whatever, yeah, I died, went to heaven and I saw God and I'm back to tell you what he said. Not, do not believe that person. No one can see God and live. But Jesus made a promise, a beautiful promise. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. Isn't that amazing? It's a future promise. Any minute specifically will be fulfilled in the eternal heaven. What that means is the face of God. God the Father does not have a body. He is a spirit. Okay? These are anthropomorphical terms being used to try to describe an infinite, eternal God who is spirit. But we will see His face. And the terminology, the most personal, intimate detail that summarizes the essence of a being is that person's face, isn't it? Somebody goes in to rob a store or rob a bank. What do they hide? They hide their face. You could see their hands or whatever else. they got to hide their face because that is their true identity. That is the essence of their identity is their face. That girl you liked in high school and had a crush on. Yeah, she's got nice fingers and toes. I, I don't care. I want to see her face. Right? It's Face speaks of utter essence and identity. And that's just the beautiful picture here. So when it says that we're going to see the face of God, even though God the Father doesn't have a body, that means we are going to see God in His glory unveiled like never before. A privilege that the greatest of the saints and prophets on earth never had. And that is probably the greatest privilege we have in heaven. We shall see God's face. And His name shall be on their foreheads. This was promised earlier. In other words, He owns you. God put His Name on your forehead. He owns you in heaven. You are secure in God. You, he knows you personally. He knows you by name. He's, you're not going to get lost in the crowd in heaven with God and with Jesus. Just a beautiful, intimate picture of the relationship we're going to have with God in heaven. Verse 5, And there shall no longer be any night. Uh, there shall no longer... Um, and there's no need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them. God is going to shine on us and our light is actually going to reflect through us and off of us. God's light... Somehow, no more night, no more darkness. Heaven never shuts down, never closes its doors. What else are we going to do in heaven at the end of verse 5? Not only will we serve Him, we shall reign forever and ever. Three things in this passage that says we do in heaven. One is we serve. One is we reign. 
We reign with Christ as regents, doing His bidding, whatever it is, for all eternity. There's a lot to do in heaven. Man, there's a huge place with a lot going on. A lot of angels, a lot of people from all the ages will never have lack of being busy, occupied, and productive on God's behalf. Reigning forever. How glorious is that? That is the bounty of heaven. I could go on and on, but can't. Go on to point number two. The certainty of the heavenly Jerusalem. The certainty this is going to happen. Some people hear this. Read our explanation of it. Read evangelical Bible-believing commentaries on Revelation and they shake their head and they laugh and they say, this is a joke. I can't believe you people are so ignorant to actually believe this. This is fairy tale stuff. This is archaic. This was given to uneducated people 2,000 years ago that didn't know about real science and modern technology. It's obsolete. You can't really believe this. Well, God knew that people would come along and say that continually. Mockers, they're called. God has a word for mockers in Revelation. Unfortunately, sometimes people in the Christian church buy into the views of the mockers. We read this, we get encouraged, we're excited about it, we want to shout hallelujah, and then somebody comes along and takes the wind out of ourselves. Well, it's not literal, it's not really going to happen like that. And this all already, it already happened, it's happening right now. This is all happening right now. In your miserable, pathetic life that you're living, it's, it's going on right now. I was like, wow. What are you, what? No, this happened in 70 AD. When the Romans came. No, it didn't. And so here's the reminder from God to his, the mockers, verse 6, who won't believe God at his word. And the angel said to me, John, these words are faithful and true. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, this stuff is true. It's going to happen. I know you're having a hard time believing, but it's going to happen. These words are faithful and true. Everything I have revealed to you in the book of Revelation, it is faithful, you can count on it. It is true, it came from God. Now, that's not the first time John heard that. Chapter 21, same thing, verse 5. John's getting all this amazing revelation. He's like, wow! And the angel says, man, write it down. Close your mouth. Get your tongue off the floor. Write it down. And then after that, verse 5, he says, right, for these words are faithful and true, John. And John was an apostle who knew Jesus and saw miracles firsthand. And still there could have been a temptation to not believe it because it was too good and too glorious. This news is too good to be true. Same thing in chapter 19. Marriage supper of the Lamb and the glorious future at the time of the millennium. It's like, wow, is that really going to happen? Yeah, you can count on it because 19 verse 9 at the end of the verse says, these are true words of God. Man, how many times does God have to say that revelation is true before people will believe it? It started out that way. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave, God gave it. To show to his bondservants, that's us. The things, here it is, which must take place. God's word is true. Revelation is true. Revelation is scripture. It is inspired. It is from God. You can count on it. Be encouraged. Believe it. Well, how do you, how do you practically apply all this stuff in Revelation 22? How do you practically apply that, pastor? Believe it. That's step one. It always is. Believe it. That is very practical. Because you will be challenged, tempted, undermined to not believe God at His Word. Continually, either by Satan or false teaching. Believe it. These words are faithful and true. And he goes on, verse 6, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. How do we know that the writings are true? By the way, the writings are referred to at the end of verse 7. How do we know that the actual written record as we have it today in Revelation is true? I can kind of maybe say, yeah, I understand when God gave it directly to John 2,000 years ago, orally it was true. But how can we be assured that what we have written is true and it hasn't been lost over time? Well, God addresses that right here. The actual written record is true. 
Because the God of the spirits of the prophets, the prophets wrote this stuff down as God exactly wanted it. He is the God of the spirits. The spirits refers to John's human spirit, his ability to think, a rational being, his very thoughts, his ability to write it down. And God dictated or actually was in charge of John's thoughts, carried along by the spirit of God. And then John wrote it down as exactly how God wanted it. And then God inspired the scriptures themselves. The writings were perfectly preserved by God himself, the God of the spirits. That's how we know that the Bible is true. How do you know the Bible is true and has no errors? My answer is simple because God said so. Well, that's circular. Well, I believe it. Well, that's unreasonable. Well, it's in the Bible. The Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. Well, that's illogical. Too bad. It's by faith. Bottom line, I can't just I believe it by faith. God said so. He goes on, and the Lord God, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his not only did he, God himself move the prophets, guarantee its preservation, get it written down perfectly. God did it supernaturally. This wasn't just the work of man. He had angelic, supernatural, heavenly beings communicate the truth and the message. It took supernatural messengers. I guarantee that false religion all over the place, it doesn't, it's not dependent upon God and supernatural revelators. It's sinners who put false religion and books together. Unless it's a demon. God of the spirits, the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And then finally, how do we know this is true? Well, oh, and also verse eight says, John says he's an eyewitness. I saw this stuff. So you can count. So we have the eyewitness of an apostle, the eyewitness of God himself, the eyewitness of an angel and the eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse seven, telling us that scripture is true. Revelation is true because in verse seven, Jesus is speaking and he says, and commenting on this, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds, believes, obeys the words of the prophecy of this book of revelation. You are blessed if you believe revelation. Jesus said that. That's how we know the Bible is true. That's how we know there are no errors in revelation. The Old Testament legally validated truth through the testimony of two to three reliable witnesses. And here on this passage alone, we have the testimony of four or five reliable witnesses. John the Apostle, angels who gave it, God himself, and Jesus as well. Isn't that enough validation? The testimony of infinite, amazing witnesses in the triune God of the universe. You can believe your Bible. That's the point. It is certain. The certainty of the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's go on to the last point, and that is the priority of the heavenly Jerusalem. And this is a good reminder for us. Well, what, let's see. What am I going to do in heaven to occupy my time? Who will I get to talk to? And what friends will I get to hang out with? Oops. That's kind of a wrong perspective, isn't it? It's all I-centered, ego-centered, me-centered. That ain't what heaven is about. Yeah, we get to be there. We get to be blessed. We get to serve, we get to reign, we get to enjoy everything, but this is a great reminder of what the ultimate priority is. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. It's all about the Savior. It's all about the glorious Trinity. Verses 8 and following, and I, John, and the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down. So John is just so overwhelmed with this supernatural revelation and truth about the future and God and eternal heaven and the prospect of being here. Keeping in mind, John, he's an old man. He's had a hard life. He has been persecuted. He is in prison. He is tired of this life. He's at the mindset at this point where Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far much better. I want to be out of here. I want to be in heaven where all this is happening. And that's John's mindset. And it says he falls down. He prostrates himself to worship God in awe of this great truth that he's just received. 
That's the proper response, except, oop, he made a little boo-boo. So we're reminded that John is still, even as an apostle, uh, a sinner and myopic. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. Oops, you're not supposed to worship angels. Colossians said don't worship angels. Exodus, the Ten Commandments said don't worship anything other than God. Boy, this happened to him earlier in chapter 19, verse 10. Same thing. He was so overwhelmed with truth. Uh, and I fell at the feet of the angel to worship him. And the angel said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of, with you. The same thing happens here. John's just overwhelmed. And he tries to worship the angel. Verse 9, and the angel said to him, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brother, the, the prophets of those who heed the words of this book. Rather, worship God. That is the priority right there. Worship God and God alone. That takes us back to the Ten Commandments. Worship God and God alone. Only God receives the glory. The first chapel message I ever heard in seminary, I will never forget the outline. That was 20-some-odd years ago. Forgot all the other messages in, in seminary, but this one I'll never forget. A pastor who exhorted us from Scripture and said, it's all about God and His glory. And you, and you render everything to God. So stay away from three things, men of God, as pastors. Keep your hands off the glory, the girls, and the whatever the other G was. <laughs> the glory. In other words, he was saying, God blesses your ministry. Don't take glory for it because you didn't do it. It's all about God, his glory. He gets the glory for everything. Absolutely everything. And don't worship anything other than God himself. And we got a problem with that, don't we? We've got a problem with worshiping idols and pictures and images and Mother Mary, the mother of God. She's not the mother of God. You don't worship Mary. You don't pray to Mary. You don't worship dead people. You don't worship your ancestors. You don't worship dead saints. That's all wrong. That's idolatry. We worship God and God alone. We worship Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. We should pray to Jesus and worship Him. He is God as much as the Father is God. Worship God and God alone. We don't worship images. We worship God and God alone. That's the priority. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Now he's concluding the entire book. And he's telling John as an apostle, don't seal these words up. Don't hide these words. Keep these truths or don't keep these truths restricted. The reason he's saying this is because an angel said the exact same thing to the prophet Daniel 500 years previously to John's time. Because here, God gave Daniel all this information about the future, the tribulation, all the stuff that was going to happen. And at the very end, the angel tells Daniel, you got to, by the way, you got to seal that up. And you got to seal that up. I, I tell you more, but we got to seal it up. You cannot reveal this information. Now is not the time. Now is not the time for the saints to know. It needs to be sealed up. Some stuff still needs to happen. The Messiah needs to come. He needs to die on the cross, rise again from the dead. Uh, the church needs to be built, and on and on. All these things that God still had. So he told Daniel, seal it up. Seal it up. Many times in Jesus' ministry before he died, he did a miracle and they want to go tell everybody and Jesus said, don't say anything. Shh, seal it up. Don't tell everybody about me yet. Why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus didn't come, he didn't leave heaven, take on a body, assume humiliation, be born in isolation and obscurity, grow up as a man to perform a miracle. That was not his mission. To create bread out and, and fish. That was not his main goal. The reason he came was to die on the cross for sinners, rise again from the dead and ascend back into heaven. That was his goal. He hadn't done it yet. And that's why he told him, don't go telling people about me yet. Because he still hadn't done the greatest thing he was to be known for. 
Not just a philanthropist who gives out free food. That is not Jesus. So this is the exact opposite. The angel's telling John, don't seal it up. You know what that means? Preach it. Teach it. Reveal it. Make it known. Announce it. Proclaim it. Highlight it. Accentuate it. Why should I preach the book of Revelation to my church? Because it's commanded right here. They need to know these glorious truths. They need to know these sobering warnings that God gives to sinners who don't repent. They need to know it. It needs to be unveiled and revealed. Amen? And what a a great and blessed opportunity it has been for us as a church for over a year now to look at Revelation chapter by chapter, to be blessed and to obey God and just to reveal it and make it known to His people. And that's why the Apostle Paul was committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. Everything that God has given us in written revelation. Because all Scripture is inspired by God that God wants to use to bring us to perfect maturity and completion as Christians. And you can't do that if you're skipping some Scripture. So this is a good truth. Don't seal it up. Make it known. And then finally he concludes this section with this verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Here's another warning. And all throughout, you know, uh, we're getting near the end of, to eternity. And once we get to eternity, there's no turning back. Actually, once you get to death, there's no turning back. That's the point. Repent, repent. Jesus wants you to turn to Him. Turn to Him, all who will be saved, all who will be saved. He's a gracious, merciful Savior. Turn to Him. That's God's heart. That is His plea continually. And here's one more last plea. Turn to Christ. Because if you don't, if you are resolved in rejection of Jesus Christ and His gospel in this life, the resolve to reject Him, if you hold that resolution of rejecting Christ at your, the point of death that will crystallize into eternity. That's the point of this verse. How will you die? Will you die in belief or unbelief? Because if you die in unbelief, the beginning of verse 11 is for you. Let the one who does wrong. You rejected Christ, still do wrong. That means for all of eternity, you're going you're gonna to end up in hell doing wrong as a sinner, unforgiven. And let the one who is filthy, stained, unforgiven of sin, if you die in your sin rejecting Christ, you will be considered a sinner and you will be consigned to hell forever as a sinner, unforgiven. That's what that means. This is one last gracious warning by God. The good news, and let the one who is righteous, who's believed in Jesus Christ in this life, still practice righteousness, keep persevering, keep believing, keep trusting in God. That's going to be crystallized into eternity for your good. And let the one who is holy still keep himself holy, living a pure life, unstained by the world, not compromising, wanting to mimic the very life of Jesus Christ himself, pleasing the Father. You know, we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to serve God. We start right now in this life, don't we, as Christians? Serving Him. And one of the ways that we serve God that pleases Him is by living a holy life, abstaining from the things of the world. What great, fantastic truths. So I hope that your heart is encouraged and I hope that uh, your appetite is whetted a little bit about maybe digging deeper into what heaven's going to be like as revealed in Revelation 22. And what a great way to prepare our hearts for communion. For those of you who know Jesus Christ personally, we now have the privilege to remember everything about Christ, who He is, His death and resurrection, and the fact that He's coming again and there's a future eternal home for all of us. We'll celebrate that in communion. But let me go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and thank Him. Father, we do thank You for this day. We thank You for the Lord's Day, time that You have set aside for us for our good, but also to focus on You. Thank You for the reminder that, yes, we can serve in heaven, but also reign with you, which is amazing. And then also the greatest priority of all to worship you as we're going to have that great privilege to see your face. And in the meantime, Lord, we know that we don't see you. 
And that's why the Christian is called to walk by faith, not by sight. But you've given us of your Holy Spirit to make it a reality and even to make it personable until we reach fulfillment. Thank you for our time together in the world, world uh, in the word. Uh, bless us, go before us as we entrust everything to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.